my name is uh, Sherali Tareen. I teach religion at Franklin and Marshall College. Uh, welcome to this Author Meets Critics Roundtable panel on Sabah Mahmood's book, Religious Difference in a Secular Age, a Minority Report, uh, published by Princeton University Press this year. We have four distinguished discussants, Arvind Mandir, John Modern, Narmeen Muftah, and Mona Orabi, who will engage different aspects of this book. I will introduce the panelists as they will speak. Uh, unfortunately, Sabah Mahmood is not able to join us today uh, because uh, she's been unwell. Uh, she sends her deep regrets for not being able to make it. Uh, let me thank Sabah for allowing us to hold this roundtable discussion around her new book and for giving us this opportunity to wrestle with her work. Uh, through this panel, we hope to engage as well as honor Sabah's scholarship and thinking, and I know that I speak for all of us in wishing her the speediest recovery. By way of staging our discussion, in case some people may not have had the chance of uh, reading this book, let me just take five minutes uh, to very briefly describe its major arguments and themes so that our discussants may focus on more specific aspects of the book without having to summarize its contents. By the way, I should mention that the AAR has designated this panel as a blockbuster session. Uh, which is going well with the, with the vibes around here. So we've prepared a blockbuster package uh, for you. It has all ingredients. Uh, there is suspense, there is comedy, uh, drama. So I hope you enjoy it. In a nutshell, religious difference in a secular age is a study of the structural paradoxes of political secularism. Building on recent scholarship that has questioned the religion's secular binary, this book shows the intimacy of religious inequality and modern state power. By tracking the permeation in Egypt of signature precepts of secularism, such as public order, minority rights, religious liberty, the legal distinction between the public and the private, and the emergence of history as the sovereign decider of moral arguments, this book seeks to disrupt the binary of Western and non-Western secularism. It argues that while the precise trajectory of religious inequality is historically specific to each context, its inextricability to liberal political rule is derived from analogous conundrums and paradoxes involved in the modern state's management of religious difference. With its focus on Egypt, this book seeks to puncture the commonly held assumption that sectarianism and inter-religious tensions and violence in the Middle East are products of the lack of secularism and untamed religiosity in the region. Turning this assumption on its head, Mahmoud argues that religious inequality is enshrined to the very logic and structure of political secularism. For all its claims to religious neutrality, the political and legal structuration of the modern state necessitates its involvement in and production of religious difference. While engaging a number of varied themes and settings, the conceptual glue that binds this book has to do with an irresolvable contradiction, inseparable to the operation of the modern secular state. Namely, the seeming disavowal of religion from the sphere of politics and the simultaneous reliance on religious categories to regulate social life and norms. These two opposing dimensions of political secularism, what Mahmoud calls its regulatory impulse and its promise of freedom are at once intertwined and co-dependent. Most importantly, 
the irresolvable contradiction inherent in this dual impulse is not simply a matter of theoretical abstraction. Rather, this inescapable contradiction of political secularism is crucial to how the modern state orders and constitutes the, count the contours of religious life and its corresponding forms of exclusion, violence, and hierarchies. Mahmoud assembles this broader conceptual argument by focusing on two categories that she sees as symptomatic of the contradictory character of political secularism, the categories of religious liberty and minority rights. Much of this book is occupied with tracing the intellectual and political careers of these concepts in Egypt, with a constant gaze on how these careers were shaped by the enveloping shadow of modern colonial power. By charting the transformation of religious minorities in Egypt, such as the Coptic Orthodox Christians, into minoritized and distinctly enumerated political groups, Mahmoud makes the case that, and here I quote, rather than see minority rights and religious liberty as universally applicable moral principles, they are best understood as strategies of liberal secular governance aimed at regulating and managing difference, religious, racial, ethnic, and cultural in a national polity, end of quote. Instead of overcoming religious inequality, Mahmoud argues, the discourse of minority rights and religious liberty only exacerbates sectarian and communal conflict. This is so because of the impossibility of the states seeking to redress religious inequality without making religious difference integral to its political vocabulary. This tension is poignantly captured by the following question posed by Mahmoud. How to banish religion from politics while at the same time devise laws to ameliorate religious inequality? The most profound outcome of looking to the state for religious for rights and liberty is the magnification of the state's sovereign agency, while individual citizens marked as belonging to either the majority or minority population are tied to the state through a system of rights and obligations. Therefore, Mahmoud concludes, it is not the failure of secularism, but precisely its opposite, the centrality of the secular political rationality that has, in large part, intensified majority-minority tensions and violence in Egypt. As she puts her main argument, and here I quote, the process of secularization in the Middle East, far from eliminating religious difference, has subjected it to a new grid of intelligibility that is compatible with the rationality of modern political rule. So in its broadest sense, I read relig religious difference in a secular age as an invitation to imagine a horizon of the political that is more suspicious of conceding the problem of religious difference to the sovereign agency of the state, and that is less enthusiastic about presenting secularism as the solution to religious inequality and minority suffering. Indeed, the minority report contained in this book reads more like an autopsy report of political secularism that brings its celebratory narrative of having overcome religious difference into fatal doubt. So now let me turn to our discussants today, uh, who will engage uh, more specifically with multiple aspects of this book, followed by discussion and Q&A uh, with uh, the audience members. Our first speaker today is Nerveen Mukhtar, who is currently 
a postdoctoral fellow at the Buffett Institute at Northwestern University. Narmeen did her PhD in anthropology at the University of Toronto, and she's currently working on her book project that is titled, Read in the Name of Your Lord, Islamic Literary Activism Between Reform and Revolution. Please join me in welcoming Narmeen Mukhtar. Consider for a moment the following scene. It's January 2015, and a Cairo Marriott is packed with guests for a book launch. The book itself is a young adult novel named after its protagonist, Rafi Barakat. The audience is not the usual smattering of writers, professors, and critics that are typical of the city's literary salons. And the author, while a familiar Public presence is new to the literary scene. It is Amra Khalid's first foray into novel writing. Khalid is one of the world's most popular Muslim preachers. For over a decade, he has been a pivotal figure in a significant strand of Egypt's Islamic revival, particularly through his television programs. But in recent years, he has shifted to preaching about the importance of reading. Through an adventure novel, Khalid revisits his old themes. As the protagonist sets out to solve a mystery, he encounters a cast of characters, including a sheikh and a priest, whose messages of wisdom echo each other's. Not only does the novel continue Khalid's preaching on coexistence and love of country, but it makes the virtues of hope, perseverance, and trusting God the enduring truths of Muslim and Coptic teachings. What can we make of a Muslim preacher's foray into fiction? What insights can we glean from Sabah Mahmoud's religious difference in a secular age, a minority report, that can help us make sense of this? While it is in the final chapter that Mahmoud turns explicitly to fiction, the book's argument can be seen as a story about the fiction of the neutrality of secularism, a fiction she dispels by tracing secular legal concepts like religious liberty and minority rights in colonial and contemporary global discourses. But before I turn to Mahmoud's discussion of secularity to help decipher my own research conundrums, I would first like to step back to take a wider view of the book's theoretical and methodological interventions. This leads me to ask, what can an anthropology of secularism do for an anthropology of religion. To speak of such things, an anthropology of secularism or uh, an anthropology of religion, is to perhaps already separate and harden these concepts, to ply apart these worlds in such a way that a minority port cautions against. It is, after all, a history of their mutual constitution. One reason to pose the question is to think about our teaching. So last spring in the course Anthropology of Religion, I taught, Ma I taught Mahmoud's piece Sectarian Conflict and Family Law in Contemporary Egypt um, in the penultimate week of the class. The article put forward a similar argument that we find um, in chapter three of the book. Specifically, that secular power works to alter what we think of as religious identity and shape communal relations that strengthen religious and gender hierarchies. 
The session proved to be the most explosive of the quarter. When one student protested, but secularism is the absence of religion. Other students stepped in, hearkening back to our early discussions of the emergence of religion as a concept. The secular then became a testing, something of a testing ground for what students had learned about religion. An anthropology of secularism reveals the ground we stand on, and this leaves many unsteady. It is much more challenging and disorienting for us to pull at the thread of modern secular power rather than understand interreligious conflict as the result of religions that have not properly modernized, or perhaps alternatively, as the product of religion itself. By probing the histories and concepts of the management of religious difference, the book offers a different narrative than one of intractable conflict that casts issues of religious minorities in the Middle East as the product of the dhimmi frozen in time. Mahmoud takes us beyond a framing that constructs the region as an example of the incomplete maturation of secularism. She addresses the assumption that Muslims just won't play nice, whether in a Muslim-majority Middle East or as a demographic minority in Europe. The place, and often predicament, of Muslims and Islam figure prominently in many efforts to untangle the genealogies and politics of the secular, secularism, and secularity. We have seen this in many works, from Hussein Ali Agrama's work on Sharia in Egypt's family law courts, uh, to Mayanti Fernando's on how France's Muslim question is a question about the very histories and values of laicite. For others, such as Elizabeth Hurd, they are major players. In fact, those who examine secularism directly, like Matthew and Gelke's work on secular humanists in the United Kingdom, are in the minority, as it were. This is certainly no accident. Rather, it's a diagnostic of the methodological challenge to understand the ground we stand on, one where a clash of civilizations or cultures framework continues to dominate the public discourse. This trend that we see today in the scholarship may reflect a query Talal Assad puts forward in Formations of the Secular, where he asks what might an anthropology of the secular look like? And at least a part of his response to this question is that it is best pursued in its shadows. A minority report is such a work that stalks through the shadows. Mahmoud tells us that this is an anthropological work that does not privilege participant observation, the method that anthropology is so often reduced to. Rather than thinking of ethnography as the anthropologist's exclusive form of writing, Mahmoud challenges us to go beyond this parochialism. While conducting fieldwork with the Egyptian Institute for Personal Rights, she discovered the need to trace the global discourses they were a part of and reckon with the historical genealogies from the 18th century on that shaped how religious freedom and minority rights were and continue to be shaped in Egypt. As she puts it, this approach transcends the ethnographic encounter. It investigates the coming together of the worlds we research, rather than narrowing our attention on an ethnographic present that might risk making the same analytical mistakes as popular tellings of an Islamist Middle East 
not yet properly secularized. In other words, Mahmoud's methods did not simply add depth to the discussion, but they're absolutely essential if we're to understand our subject. A minority report is primarily about secularism. Um, and as Mahmoud explains it, this is, quote, the legal political discourse that reorders religious life and identity, generating new forms of intercommunal conflict, end quote. It's not until the final chapter, called Secularity History Fiction, that Mahmoud pivots away from secularism to examine secularity. And it's here that I want to turn my attention. Secularity, we are told, is a shared set of background assumptions, attitudes, and dispositions that imbue secular society and subjectivity. Secularity entails a certain judgment about and appreciation for what religion should be in the modern world. Here, we move away from the state and its policies to set our sights on issues of subjectivity and sensibility. The chapter takes as its focus the controversy stirred by the novel Azazil, a work of historic fiction written by Yusuf Zidan about a fourth century Christological dispute between the Miaphysites and the Deophysites. Those familiar with Mahmoud's work will find the analysis of cultural production and its reception to be familiar territory. In Is Critique Secular, she explains how Muslims relate to the Prophet Muhammad in ways that made the Danish cartoon not merely blasphemous in the parlance of liberal secularism, but injurious. With Azazil, Mahmoud shifts our focus to the idea and politics of historic fiction and the response it elicited that stoked sectarian strife. Through the controversy, she describes how the novel and debates surrounding it articulated a secular version of religion. Mahmoud articulates how the secular is not the neutral ground against which religious objections are staged, but is itself generative of such conflicts. The book's critics included prominent Coptic leaders who attacked the novel on the basis of its historical inaccuracy and suggested that a Muslim writer's efforts to describe this past suggested an effort to sow seeds of discord. Zidane defended his work in two contradictory ways. He argued that the novel should not be criticized because it is A, historically unassailable, and B, merely a work of fiction, creating an obvious tension that Mahmoud points out in the course of her analysis. She reminds us that literary studies points out how the emergence of the novel in the 19th century brought with it the cultivation of bourgeoisie sensibilities. She demonstrates the disciplinary effects of literature known as adab uh, that seeks uh, to set the terms of the debate. So how might these observations enrich our understanding of a Muslim televangelist come novelist? At first, the shift may seem jarring to move from a serious work such as Azazil to a young adult novel. But I believe that attention to literature in the horizon of possibility for how literature is read can reveal the serious stakes of an adventure novel. With Rafi Barakat, 
we see Amr Khalid's effort to use literature to cultivate particular desirable sensibilities, not only for Muslims, but for pious Egyptians. Rafi, which in Arabic means to mend or to reform, is supposed to be a role model, even a national hero. And chief among the values of our reforming hero is a religious coexistence that at once highlights and erases religious difference. Rafi Barakat is one initiative among others that I've been tracing in Egypt um, among Muslim and Coptic programs that seek to bring reading to a wider audience. So there's a strong national discourse on the value of literacy that puts religion at the center of the appeal for reading. This discourse makes reading itself an act of worship, a kind of worship that is revealing of how the secular molds contemporary religious revivalism. With Rafi Barakat, Amr Khalid reconfigures what is sacred about reading. The literacy activists I followed in my fieldwork invoked the verse Muslims believe was the first to be revealed, read in the name of your Lord, to teach literacy as a religious duty. With Khalid's promotion of qira'a, uh, which means to read or recite or to proclaim as autonomous reading, um, rather than recitation, each of these modes of encountering texts becomes an interchangeable sort of response to God's first command to read. So recitation and reading become equal options. In this way, the novel took on a new role as a self-disciplining form of leisure. The rise of self-help literature in Egypt over the last de decade offers yet another trend in reading practices that underlines secularity. One can find books of religious advice on the very same bookshelves as those of self-help literature. These publication trends can tell us much about contemporary religion. They can enrich our thinking on how global trends that may not be explicitly related to Islam shape forms and religious practices. In other words, the forms of religion we see may be as indebted to self-help gurus like Dale Carnegie as they are to an Islamic thinker like Ibn Taymiyyah. To conclude, where does a minority report lead us? What kind of a politics does it imagine? As Mahmoud tells us in the introduction, quote, secularism is not something that can be done away with any more than modernity can be. It is an ineluctable aspect of our present condition as both political imagination and epistemological limit. To critique a particular normative regime is not to reject or condemn it. Rather, by analyzing its regulatory and productive dimensions, one only deprives it of innocence and neutrality so as to craft, perhaps, a different future." End quote. She presents to us a problem and perhaps plants the seeds for her reader to begin to imagine alternative political futures. But this is a book of paradoxes, the locking of horns, as she puts it, between different positions as they, as we here, engage in the sorts of debates that reveal the inescapability of the secular. Some 200 pages later, in her conclusions, Mahmoud provokes us to think about the individual's ethical thematization as a necessary risk, since we know that the 
here I quote again, conceptual and political resources of the state have proved inadequate, end quote. With this, she leaves to readers the task of grappling with what majority-minority relations might look like. It is a task that Egyptians have been grappling with in fresh terms since the uprising, the January 25th uprising, set in motion new kinds of dreaming and political organization, and a task that did not abate with the rise to power and later demise of the Muslim Brotherhood. This task, as Mahmoud shows us throughout the book, is not somehow a sharper one in Muslim-majority countries and may become all the more urgent now here in America. The question, what might a more robust interreligious life look like, haunts this book, and it is a challenge that Mahmoud leaves open to us. I hope it is one that we'll reflect upon together in our discussion. Thank you very much, uh, Nermeen. Our uh, next speaker is Arvind Bandir, who teaches religion at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. He's aut the author of the book, Religion and the Spectre of the West, and more recently, Sikhism, A Guide for the Perplexed. Arvind. My thanks to Shir Ali Tareen and the AAR's uh, Secularism and Secularity Group for uh, inviting me to respond to this important and very thought-provoking book. Uh, my remarks are going to be confined to mainly the second half of the book, particularly chapters four and five, partly because the book is so rich in its marshalling of ethnographic uh, data and also in its argument that it's difficult to do it justice in the 15 minutes or so that we have. And also partly because the, those last two or three chapters uh, resonate very closely with my own current interests. So chapters four and five focus on two con uh, the two sites of controversy uh, over the place of religious minorities in the Egyptian political system. The legal status of the Baha'i community in the face uh, Baha'i community in the face of uh, the Egyptian state's refusal to recognize Baha'i as religion, and secondly, the publication of the novel uh, Azazil, a work that spawned a fiercely polemical Christian-Muslim debate. Now, just to remind ourselves, one of the central arguments in the book is that secular concepts, such as public order, religious liberty, operate in very similar ways in different contexts and the context that she's comparing are the Egyptian courts and the European Court of Human Rights. And secondly, that secularism creates a legal political framework which authorizes the state to defend and promote majoritarian values. For example, in the case of the Baha'i, the Egyptian court prohibited the designation of Baha'i as a religion. To do this, uh, it deployed two parallel arguments. On the one hand, Islamic courts have to accommodate non-Muslims and affirm the inviolability of their right to religious liberty based on their internal belief system. And on the other hand, Sharia law also prohibits the public practice of anything but the recognized religions of the book. Mahmoud underscores the problematic nature of the argument by showing that the Egyptian judges did nothing more than invoke a form of Islamic reasoning. I say invoke, uh, without putting it into operation. 
Instead, in the judge's actual interpretation, Islamic reasoning based on Sharia principles is translated into and replaced by secular reasoning in such a way that the power of the sovereign state to make exceptional decisions is maintained. What's clearly exposed in this chapter is not only a duplicity in the processes of legal reasoning engaged in by both the Egyptian and European courts, but something deeper about the form of reasoning itself. So while it appears that legal decision-making in both Egyptian court and the European Court of Human Rights is governed by the field of political secularism, at the same time, the form of reasoning the form of this reasoning relies as much on Christian political theology in the European context as it does on Islamic political theology in the Egyptian context. Now, this is an important observation, but Mahmoud's argument, if I'm reading it correctly, goes a little deeper than this and suggests something else, namely that Islamic political theology doesn't even come into play in the Egyptian system. Sharia is, as I've already mentioned, invoked, but at the same time interdicted by translating the Islamic concept into the secular concept of public order. And this translation or interdiction, to quote Mahmoud, is not simply a misuse or a misunderstanding of the foundational aims of public order, but is constitutive of its conceptual matrix. Now, this also begs questions about the comparability of political theological processes at work. For example, what constitutes Islamic political theology? How does it differ from Christian political theology? Are the forms of reasoning the same in Islamic and Christian political theologies? How do each of these political theologies sit in relation to what Mahmoud refers to as the field of political secularism? Now, my interest in political theology is triggered by Mahmoud's own very rich observations about Sharia law. For example, she observes that prior to the nationalization of Egypt, Sharia law itself was, to quote, heterogeneous, context-bound, and flexible. But in the modern period, it was radically transformed into a rigid system of codified rules administered by a, central, uh, a centralized state. Second, the Egyptian courts had a much harder time trying to align Sharia law with secular state law and to make them both appear seamless. The Egyptian court had to create an equivalence between public order and Sharia principles in view of the fact that in Islamic jurisprudence, the notion of divine will or maslaha is not compatible with the modern secular concept of public order. The two, as uh, Mahmoud stresses, uh, in this chapter, the two belong to very different epistemologies. So if Islamic and Christian political theologies belong to different epistemologies, and if the operations of intellectual reasoning performed by the field of political secularism are performed less by Islamic concepts than by Christian political theology, what I'm left wondering is whether the mechanism by which the field of political secularism translates or displaces Islamic con concepts is the same as the me mechanism that Mahmoud refers to as a genuine oscillation vis-a-vis -vis the state's ability to transition itself seamlessly between the forum internum and the forum externum, externum the forum of internal belief as opposed to public practice. Just to be clear, I'm not questioning Mahmoud's central claim about political secularism in this chapter. 
I'm simply trying to visualize the mechanism of reasoning, the form or the image of thought cultivated by the field of political secularism, whereby the state is able to claim neutrality in the work of mediating the difference between incommensurable parties, different concepts, different cultures that are brought into encounter with each other. And I'd like to stress this last statement, bringing into encounter with each other, because that's what the field of uh, uh, political secularism is actually doing. Is it possible to visualize this intellectual operation of representing difference in terms of the way in which two parties are allowed to encounter or relate to each other, how they are commanded to stand uh, in relation to each other and form relations? What I'm actually pointing to here or trying to point towards is the way that the state form creates relations of interiority that work, that already work within a kind of field of consciousness that's very specific to Christian political theology. And this aspect comes out more clearly in chapter five, which shifts the focus from political secularism to secularity. This final chapter of the book looks at how secularity emerged in the controversy over the publication of Azazel, an Arabic novel which dramatizes the ancient doctrinal dispute between Aryans and Nestorians about the nature of Christ. Mahmoud shows how the ancient dispute is reincarnated in the polemic debate between the novel's author, Yusuf Zidane, who provides a secular humanist reading of the Christological controversy and his main detractor, the Coptic cleric. Uh, Bishop Bishoy, who accuses Zidane of misrepresenting and distorting the historical, <clears throat> excuse me, the historical facts, and uh, in the event stirring anti-Christian sentiment in Egypt and elsewhere. Although the debate seems to revolve around two contradictory approaches to religion, Mahmoud shows that both Zidane and his clerical critics are in fact caught up within the same epistemological framework a framework which locates all events on uh, homogenous historical time and in doing so seduces the debaters into recognizing it as a universal experience of time in which we all experience and participate. In order to assent to this form of calendrical time, the participants inadvertently posit a metaphysical distinction between the actuality of events as they really happened in the empirical world as opposed to their referential meaning. So what this uh, metaphysical distinction does is to create a secularized concept of religion, where religion's reality is relocated in the transcendental realm of eternity, or referential meaning, as opposed to the realm of human imagination. It is also this metaphysics which underpins Zidane's claims to neutrality by relying on a concept of history that places past events concepts, persons, cultures on a blank canvas and presumes to be able to compare neutrally. Now the metaphysical underpinnings of secularity are highlighted most clearly in the way that Zidane interprets the Christological debate to bolster his claim that, to quote, religion is a human creation. Whereas in the Christological debates, the Aryan and Nestorian positions, though opposed, are nevertheless fundamentally connected by their concern for the Logos as necessary for achieving salvation. In Azazel, the question concerning Christ's humanity is relocated within the domain of ontotheology, the domain which demands proof of the existence of God. 
In other words, God, religion, the sacred, is relocated into the order of existence such that God simply becomes the highest being in an order of beings. And this, of course, reverses the religious epistemology uh, and in the event causing offense to, uh, across the Muslim-Christian divide, as Mahmoud astutely demonstrates. If I'm reading her correctly, the, the real force of secularity lies in its ability to persuade representatives from different cultural traditions to willingly place themselves, their events, memories, concepts, into a comparative relationship whose ground is linear chronological time, history, which in turn gives the impression of neutrality because history is supposedly common to us, something that we all participate in. Closely scrutinized, however, this blank canvas of history works through a form of representation which beguiles us into mis misperceiving the difference of one's tradition, one's concept as an identity, an identity that is modeled on the majority cultural tradition. This entirely modern conception of history as a blank canvas is actually also a form of thought, uh, what we might call secular consciousness or thought as secular which induces recognition, but recognition only of what thought has first identified in the form of identity. So on the canvas of secular history, we're all induced to believe that the ground or the frame of consciousness we're, we're located on corresponds to the truthfulness of the world. So this brings me to what I think is the central question that the book raises. Given that secularity and political secularism are actually responsible for generating interreligious, intercultural conflict by setting religions against each other, is there a more productive way of negotiating difference as such? Could we improve the current discourse on secularism by simply reforming it or try to move beyond secularism as postmodernists have suggested? Should we look for alternative secularisms? None of these possibilities hold much appeal for Mahmoud, and her rejection of multiple secularisms in the early part of the introduction is a move that I'm also broadly in agreement with. Instead, her approach is to track the way in which secularity and secular concepts have transformed the self-understanding of people in the Middle East, both opening and closing certain modes of action. Insofar as she is able to demonstrate that such a transformation of self-understanding occurs, and to some extent how it occurs, the book succeeds admirably. However, this is also a point at which the argument seems to reach a limit. Although it highlights how the internalization of secular concepts in the Middle East and post-colony produced transformative effects which fed into the structures of majoritarianism that in turn proved to be oppressive for minorities, it would have helped to have more concrete solutions for dealing with the main effect of secularity, which is its ability to homogenize difference. Having said that, the book is genuinely helpful in at least two, uh, two ways. First of all, it helps us to recognize secularity and political secularism as forms of colonial consciousness. Secondly, it prepares the ground for those of us who are actively engaged in experimenting with alternative ways of conceptualizing difference. So by way of conclusion, I'd like to throw out a few suggestions for 
uh, further decolonizing this normative framework of secularity. First, it's necessary to understand why secularity seems to exert an iron grip, inducing us to believe that no reasonable alternative to it could exist, or that any opposition to it could be permitted only from within its theoretical constraints. Secondly, it needs to be recognized that sec secularity is ultimately a form of thought, whose, operation, uh, whose operative mechanism is the logic of representation or non-contradiction, and its purpose is to manage difference by reducing its object to an identity which can be permanently identified in any repetition of the encounter with another body. Now, Deleuze refers to this form of thought as completely dogmatic in the sense that any encounter between two concepts, religious traditions, persons, texts, it forces the difference of an encountering body into a mediation in which the foreign concept is subordinated to identity, reduced to the negative, incarcerated with, within analogy. And I'm quoting from Deleuze's Difference and Repetition here. Third, the key to developing frameworks for peaceful coexistence between religions, concepts, texts, persons, is to develop models of encounter which refuse the grip of this dogmatic image of thought, refuse recognition, and reverse the effects of negativity secreted by the fields of secularity and political secularism. Fourth, Models of encounter which might be conducive to thinking cultural difference positively can be derived as much from non-Western as Western cultural and intellectual sources. Um, more importantly, such models of encounter are already at work in the lived experiences of minorities who negotiate difference positively on a daily basis. Thank you. Thank you very much, Arvind. Uh, next, we have uh, Mona Orabi, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Law, Society, and Culture at Indiana University. She completed her PhD in political science at Northwestern University and is currently working on her book project titled Administering Religious Difference, Islam, Minorities, and the Rule of Law. Mona. I'd like to thank uh, Sharadi for inviting me to participate in this discussion. My thanks also to the, cultural, the culture history of the study of religion group and the secularism and secularity group for sponsoring the roundtable. Religious difference in a secular age is a significant contribution to the study of secularism and I welcome the opportunity to engage with some of its arguments here. This is especially so because for more than a decade, much of the scholarship on secularism has drawn significantly on or has been based in the Egyptian case study. My comments today, titled Rethinking Egypt in Secularism Studies, suggest that while scholars have arrived at some agreement about what secularism is, we know significantly less about how it works or what it does. Religious difference in a secular age seems to offer us a way forward in this regard, yet there's a tension at the heart of the book. This tension derives from the way that a public-private distinction is theorized as internal to secularism. On one hand, the book relies on Egyptian administrative jurisprudence to show how the state allegedly intervene, intervenes in a domain it otherwise deems private. 
On the other hand, it is silent on the conditions of possibility for such jurisprudence, among them that religion is a matter of public law in Egypt and has been since its founding as a modern nation state. The mechanisms of Egyptian civil administration, which I will delineate in what follows, challenge the categories through which Mahmoud suggests we might understand how secularism works. We might in turn ask whether Mahmoud invokes secularism's normative categories as the analytic measure for what it does, even as the evidence introduced in the book collapses this distinction. Before going further, I think it would be helpful to consider more closely a key aspect of the book's theorization. According to Mahmoud, secularism operates through a generative contradiction whereby the liberal state relegates religion to a private domain and politics to a public domain and yet continuously intervenes in socio-political and socio-religious life. In doing so, sovereign power regenerates itself through, quote, the two propensities internal to secularism, the regulation of religious life and the construction of religion as a space free from state intervention, end quote. She goes on to add that, quote, any incursion of the state into religious life often engenders the demand for keeping church and state separate, thereby replenishing secularism's normative premise and promise, end quote. The concept of religious equality, the claim that all people are equal regardless of religious affiliation, is said to be a constitutive feature of political secularism that traverses the Western and non-Western divide. While critics might point to the existence of religious-based family law as a measure of Egypt's incomplete secularization, Mahmoud posits that the privatization of religion and the family that inheres in religious-based family law is in fact, what she says, predicated in the public-private domain so foundational to the secular political order. It is striking that even as Mahmoud writes of how the family became historically conceived in terms of a private domain of personal status, all of the significant Egyptian court cases she cites were adjudicated in administrative courts. These include the Baha'i cases as well as those that pertain to religious conversion and apostasy. If family law is a primary institution through which religion has been privatized in Egypt, as Mahmoud claims, why would administrative courts exercise jurisdiction over these cases? What role do administrative courts play in shaping the practical possibilities of interreligious life? The short answer is that religion has been a matter of public law in Egypt and thus under the jurisdiction of administrative courts since the Sharia was constituted as a source of law in the Egyptian Civil Code of 1949. This was 22 years before the Sharia became a source of law in the 1971 constitution and some 32 years before this constitution was subsequently amended to make Sharia the principal source of legislation in Egypt. While Egypt has adopted a host of constitutions and provisional constitutional declarations since the end of British colonial rule, its civil code remains largely unchanged. I'll return to this point. The adjudication of religious difference in administrative courts thus provides an unparalleled look into how the state has regulated citizen state as well as intercommunal relations over time. The Egyptian administrative judiciary called Majlis al-Dawla 
was founded in 1946, and its jurisdiction spans the entire state administrative apparatus, including disputes between low-level bureaucrats, ministers, ministries, and the president of the republic. It also hears cases filed by ordinary individuals against administrative agencies and may compel the state to compensate individuals for wrongdoing as well as annul administrative decisions. While issues of personal status were subsumed under the national court system in 1955, that same year, the law on personal cards empowered the Ministry, the ministry of Interior to decide what criteria to include on these and other vital records. Religious affiliation thus became a legal category subject to bureaucratic oversight and judicial review. So while religion and the family were allegedly relegated to a private domain of personal status under the general courts, Majlis al-Dawla remained separate from these courts, yet has exercised jurisdiction whenever religion and civil administration intersect. Religion, insofar as it is a matter of private family law and public civil law, has never, in fact, been treated as a domain immune from state interference during Egypt's modern history. It remains a constant mediating factor in the relationship between Egyptian citizens and the state. Here I'd like to provide just a few examples of continuity in the state's involvement in religious and personal affairs since the earliest years of the Egyptian Republic. It should be mentioned that every Egyptian citizen is interpolated by the mechanisms of civil administration. But to the extent that the state's regulatory capacity is most visible at its margins, the examples I will provide are of non-Muslim engagements with the law and legal institutions. Majlis al-Dawla began pronouncing on the validity of Baha'i marriage contracts and whether Baha'is are entitled to state family allowances as early as 1952. One case decided that year concerned the, ri the rights of a Baha'i government employee to collect marriage and family allowances. The complainant provided a copy of, of his marriage contract, which conformed to Baha'i re religious law, to demonstrate his eligibility to receive the allowances. When his employer, the Egyptian Railway Authority, did not reply to his request, he filed an administrative suit. The court held that he was an apostate and that his marriage was therefore null and void. The court also struck down the plaintiff's argument that he was entitled to equal legal treatment alongside dhimmi subjects, reasoning that dhimmi status is reserved for Christians and, and Jews, with all other religions being heresy and unbelief. Finding that the complainant did not have legal grounds for receiving the allowances to which he claimed entitlement, the court dismissed the suit. There are many other examples of these types of cases which I'd be happy to address uh, after the, um, uh, during the question and answer session. Returning to the book, what is significant about the administrative cases Mahmoud discusses is, is that the, they were prompted by, by the passage of the Civil Status Law of 1994. This was no ordinary law. It was the first systematic amendment of the civil code to include provisions on the family and was thus a watershed moment in Egyptian legal history. Individual civil status now precedes and in fact determines one status in all other jurisdictions, including family law. 
When the Egyptian legislature passed the civil status law, it did so as part of a government-wide campaign to modernize civil data collection and record keeping. The law entrusts the Interior Ministry to regulate the application for and procurement of vital records and their amendment in a manner unforeseen by the law's drafters. Paragraph two of Article 47 transformed the Egyptian legal and judicial landscape by inaugurating unprecedented recourse to administrative litigation. The provision states that, quote, changes or corrections in nationality, religion, or profession, or the civil status registers concerning marriage or its annulment, authentic authentication, husband or wife initiated divorce, physical separation or proof of parentage may be made on the authority of rulings or documents issued by the competent body, jihat al-ikhtisas. This clause put Majlis al-Dawla at the center of protracted and highly controversial debates over the right to alter religious affiliation. What gets little mentioned in the, in the book is that the institutional conditions for the adjudication of religious difference were in place long before the passage of the civil status law, and yet many other institutional conditions were developed as a result of its promulgation. All of these innovations have taken place in the context of civil administration, in the context of public law. For example, the civil status organization was established by law in 1962. Two years later, the law on notarization and registration fees exempted certificates validating conversion to Islam from any fees. The executive regulations that accompanied the civil status law of 1994 required a set of procedures, conditions, rules, and documents that must be satisfied in order for administrative bodies to change the stated religious affiliation and name on a birth certificate and, and uh, personal identification card. These concern the requirements for establishing the specified information in a citizen's probative documents due to such information having legal repercussions when it comes to interacting with others in matters of family. This includes marriage, divorce, and inheritance, the effects of which differ depending on religion and sect. One of these conditions is a requirement to furnish one of two supporting documents in the application for a change of religious affiliation. This is either a ruling of a change of religious affiliation from the competent court or a certificate of change of religion issued by the competent body. The Fatwa Council of Al-Azhar has long been recognized as the administrative body competent to certify a born cop's exit from Coptic Orthodoxy. It issues what is called a certificate in the belief of the Islamic religion, Shahada Bi'atunaq al-Din al-Islami. This certificate is necessary for returnees to Coptic Orthodoxy, known as Aidun al-Masihiyya, or any class of non-Muslims for that matter, to establish their Muslim legal status. Indeed, in order for Aidun al-Masihiyya to submit an administrative request to return to Coptic Orthodoxy, their Muslim legal status had to have been established through such a certificate and its subsequent verification by the notary public. The administrative suits of the early 2000s established the comparatively limited competence of the Coptic Orthodox Church. Today, the patriarch of the church may confer membership in the Coptic Orthodox denomination by issuing a certificate of return, shahadat awda, 
but only to cops who are previously affiliated with the church. Although scholarship often treats al-Azhar and the church as primarily ecclesiastical institutions, the jurisprudence on religious status amendment indicates the extent of their administrative capacities. Such jurisprudence offers a remarkable example of how al-Azhar and the church function as administrative bodies according to Egyptian law. Moreover, their legally authorized capacity to produce documentation admissible as legal evidence in allegedly non-religious jurisdictions, the administrative courts, should give us pause. These dynamics suggest the outmodedness of theories that insist on a religion, church, private, and politics, state, public, reading of the complexity that inheres within Egyptian society. It seems to me that Mahmoud's theorization of how secularism works relies on a constitutional understanding of religious neutrality. In other words, the book takes secularism's own promise of civil and political equality, regardless of religious difference, as a starting point for analysis. The danger in doing so is that this promise is largely symbolic, given the general trend toward constitutional convergence. As legal scholar Tom Ginsburg has shown, the classic first generation rights, freedom of religion, freedom of association, and freedom of expression became nearly uni universal by the end of the 20th century, meaning that they are found in more than 90% of constitutions worldwide. It is thus not surprising that states across the world promise religious freedom in their constitutions, yet fall radically short of that promise. As I have tried to articulate, we are more likely to understand the architecture of this failure if we look to administration and bureaucracy, which constitute the backbone of state functioning. And although Mahmoud states that her aim is not to argue for the impossibility of religious freedom, but to illuminate its conditionality, my comments point to, to the limitations of the framework she offers us for doing so. The way forward, it seems, is to theorize on the basis of the empirical phenomena that manifest in the world rather than the normative agendas we impress upon them. By way of conclusion, I'd like to return to my initial remarks about the secularism studies canon. In Formations of the Secular, Talal Asad wrote, quote, if secularism as a doctrine requires the distinction between private reason and public principle, it also demands the placing of the religious in the former by the secular. Assad's theorization seems far more tentative than what Mahmoud allows. Might this serve as an occasion for scholars to revisit what Hussein Agrama understands is at stake here? In questioning secularism, Agrama explains, quote, Secular power works by rendering precarious and even undermining the very categories on which it ostensibly depends and aims to establish, end quote. What are the implications of undertaking research on secularism by using its own categories as a point of departure? What would it look like instead to study secularism in its shadows? Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, Mona. Our final discussant is John Modern, who teaches religion at Franklin and Marshall College. Uh, he's the author of Secularism in Antebellum America. Uh, John is currently working on a book on the intersection of secularism, technology, and cognitive science. John. 
morning, everybody. Um, I'd like to start by thanking Shirley for organizing this, my fellow panelists, uh, the Cultural History of the Study of Religion group and the Secularism and Secularity group. And I would also like to thank Saba for this book. It's been an incredibly helpful book over this past year, very inspiring, and it's helped me think through a number of different kinds of issues in my own work. And, and what I'm about to say here is uh, basically a kind of insight into why I find the book so, so necessary. In Religious Difference in the Secular Age, a Minority Report, Saba Mahmood offers an impressive case for the covenantal coercions of secularism, what she calls the inescapable quality and its limitations. In her searching inquiry into an ecology of power at a moment when the seams of self-evident truths continue to fray, Mahmoud illuminates how such fraying is integral to the fabric of existing power relations. These seams, ever consolidating and coming undone, are places where power happens. They reveal, in other words, not simply the mechanics of power, but also something about how the politics of authoritarianism, whether that politics is implicit or bald-faced, proceeds apace. When these seams begin to visibly unravel, we often tend to them with lamentation and the gnashing of teeth, or else with platitudes about common ground and the instrumental stands of eternal optimism. The seams, however, remind us of the biopolitical costs of governance and the tolls exacted and the bodies broken, all those things we would rather not know or have to necessarily think about. And biopolitics in general, requires a higher level mathematics, a move beyond the physics of mere cause and effect. For the loops between a world-making self and a self-making world are as intense as they are interlocking and all but impossible to pin down for sustained dissection. It is difficult to put under the microscope that which moves, that which blurs, or is otherwise framed before your eyes. And that is why Religious Difference in the Secular Age is an absolutely necessary book at this particular juncture in history. For Mahmoud does not merely show the fabric of secularism being haltingly sewn, but in an act of critical resistance, keeps particular seams open to frame and patiently explain the biopolitical intensities that occur within them. Mahmoud offers new and pressing questions. For example, what is the source of secularism's sway, the slow sucking sound of its future ever making its way in? How does religion as a legal concept, as word and deed, as an object of critique or scientific explanation or manifesto serve to consolidate a political order? Do secular orders of governance depend upon the violation of their first principles to maintain their authority? Do concepts such as religious liberty and minority rights ever serve the interest of the state rather than the individual who supposedly possesses some version of them? These are but a few of the inquiries that Mahmoud pursues in religious difference, her persuasive and exacting investigation of the powerful resonance between secular concepts such as religious liberty and minority rights. And in a series of tightly argued chapters, Mahmoud charts their generative relationality on the national stage of modern Egypt. 
According to Mahmoud, religious difference is entangled in the making and maintenance of the nation state, a new kind of political rationality that differs from the pluralistic calculus of empires. Underlying Mahmoud's analysis is a sense of increasing precarity of religious minorities in general, but particularly those like Baha'is in Egypt or, to a lesser extent, Coptic Christians. This political rationality involves, quote, the reordering and remaking of religious life and interconfessional relations in accord with specific norms themselves foreign to the life of the religions and people it organizes, unquote. Mahmoud's focus then is on the life worlds that such activity creates, the forms of exclusion and violence it entails, and the kinds of hierarchies it generates in those it seeks to undermine. So to cut to the chase, Mahmoud's argument based on ethnographic and archival work in contemporary Egypt demands nothing less than a rethinking of what constitutes the authority of the modern state, what she describes as, quote, the modern state's disavowal of religion in its political calculus and its simultaneous reliance on religious categories to structure and regulate social life, unquote. Religious difference contributes to ongoing conversations about the institutional roots of secularism and the particularities of its religious history. In the maneuvers of the contemporary Egyptian state, Mahmoud rightly detects the scent of Protestant interiority, wafting, historically speaking, from colonial administrators and missionaries who had earlier used concepts such as religious liberty to secure their own political status and cast suspicion upon communities and traditions that they found threatening. Mahmoud uses this as an opportunity to question the very ground of secular analysis and critique. As she writes, quote, in reflecting on this global campaign that Euro-American missionaries, educators, and colonial officials launched, it is hard to separate the religious elements from the secular ones. Indeed, she says, it is difficult to even imagine how one would secure such a separation epistemologically, politically, and historically, unquote. With the continuing impact of American evangelicals, proponents of neoliberalism, and the politics of human rights in the U.S. government's passage of IRFA in 1998, the American International Religious Freedom Act, Egypt remains central to a global imaginary, not to mention it being a site of secularism's categorical reach and categorical confusions. A central argument of religious difference is this. In its claims to promote equality at the level of the individual, secular governance can produce all manner of new exclusions and distinctions. So for example, given the, what she calls the pernicious symbiosis created between religion and sexuality under modern secularism, women bear the brunt of the regulatory power, their bodies overly invested with moral claims and disproportionately subject to the rule of law. In Egypt, the imagination of secular order hinges upon maintaining the public-private divide and increasingly upon the dictates of family law. Religious minorities too, Baha'is and Copts to a lesser degree, bear a sacrificial burden when it comes to maintaining secular modes of governance. For both women and Baha'is, these hierarchies are not merely epiphenomenal, unfortunate and unforeseen consequences of any good faith effort of global governance. On the contrary, exclusions and distinctions are essential to the state's perpetuation. 
assuring its authority over religion by generating the inequalities that demand its intervention and arbitration, and so on and so forth. Mahmoud does not rest satisfied, however, with exposing the contradictions of secular governance. Structural paradoxes haunt the secular project. But such paradoxes, in turn, beget contradictions that are, and this is a significant contribution of religious difference, they are generative, right? There's, this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mechanism here that she is, I think, pointing out that is really um, powerful and, um, embold and you know, it's sort of in kind of emboldening me to think about what is the sort of, I guess, ontic status of the state. These contradictions, in other words, not only constitute the norm, they normalize the norm by way of its transgression. So, for example, the relegation of the religious to the private sphere as a matter of belief and conscience happens in a kind of two-step maneuver. The secular state violates its own norms in order to reinforce them. And I have a long quote here from Saba. On the one hand, she writes, the liberal state claims to maintain a separation between church and state by relegating religion to the private sphere, that sacrosanct domain of religious belief and individual liberty. On the other hand, modern governmentality involves the state's intervention and regulation of many aspects of socio-religious life, dissolving the distinction between public and private and thereby contravening its first claim. This does not mean that the liberal state's ideological commitment to keep church and state apart is a false or specious one, or that secularism constrains religion rather than setting it free. Rather, the two propensities internal to secularism, the regulation of religious life and the construction of religion as a space free from state intervention, account for its phenomenal power to regenerate itself. Any incursion of the state into religious life often engenders the demand for keeping church and state separate, thereby replenishing secularism's normative premise and promise." Unquote. This insight is thrilling. It is both profound and disturbing, namely that the promise of secular order is sustained because of its inherent limitations, its material failure guaranteeing its ideological success. In pointing out this loop, Mahmoud suggests that there may be nothing behind the mask of secular governance, save for its capacity to perpetuate itself. It is, as they say, a theory of information, but it can still fuck your shit up. A secular state, then, is something like a wrathful god in its legal and effective sustain. Perhaps even an agency of its own. And this is the brilliance of Mahmoud's ethnography of the state, her attention to its lifeways, the decisions it makes in order to survive, the different opinions and debates that it generates. Here is a post-human political critique of a self-organizing system. For rather than focus on the creativity of individuals within the secular age, Mahmoud's interest lies in the creative qualities of secularism. That is, secularism as a discursive formation that performs an amazing trick of making individuals meaningful to themselves. If critique that privileges a concept of the human as creative, 
and creatively flawed does not sufficiently appreciate that human action adds up to more than the sum of its parts. How then, how then to tell a story that appeals to that excess, to those non-human elements, or perhaps the inhumanity of the collective, or at least elements that are neither mathematical nor within one's immediate grasps. Mahmoud theorizes the closure of secular governance, not to re revel in the disciplinary excess of our secular age, although there is a pleasure to be had in such masochistic embrace, but to offer a new ground of analysis on which the closures of secularism are integral to its dynamism. And it is on this point that Mahmoud accounts for the generative force of secularism, approaching it as not simply self-regulating in the sense that mere ideology conserves its power, but rather, again, as a self-organizing system in that it is a generative force that arises in those points and moments of boundary maintenance, where and when an outside is necessarily encountered and maintained. So take, for instance, one of Mahmoud's set pieces in her book, the int introduction of digital systematicity as the arbiter of Egyptian national identity. And so in 1998, um, as she relates in the book, the Ministry of the Interior built a civil status organization ID card factory in order to produce the first national identity card that conformed to international standards and security measures. In 2004, computers were introduced in order to streamline the issuance of national identity cards to further standardize their necessity and, in effect, to leverage their functionality against a Baha'i religious minority. Each card possessed a unique national number. And at this time, Baha'is were legally forbidden to list their religion on their identity cards. And before the introduction of computers, however, Baha'is were often permitted by local officials to list Baha'i on their cards. And so consequently, before the introduction of computers, this paralegal maneuver was not much of an issue as identity cards were not tracked systematically, nor were they often called for in public. But there was a subtle but profound shift in 2004 when these new identity cards became more of a necessity for both political and aesthetic reasons. They became newly required for such things as opening or closing a bank account, applying for a driver's license or passport, and registering to vote or registering the number on your mobile phone. Identity cards were made of pure polycarbonate material and had a 2D encrypted barcode on them. They also had uh, this uh, kind of weird sort of holographic image on them that retained hidden information on the card owner and could only be read with the use of specialized optical technology. As Nayer Nabil of Cairo reported in 2007, the material effects of the algorithmic abstraction was indeed systematic discrimination. And I quote Nabil here. I tried to obtain the national ID card. In the application, I wrote that my religion was Baha'i, and the officer refused to accept the application and asked me to present my birth certificate. I showed it to him. It stated that I was Baha'i, and so were my parents. He still refused to accept the application and asked me to apply in Cairo. When I went to Cairo, I met an officer um, who opened a drawer in his desk and pulled out a big pile of documents and said, you see, all these applications are from Baha'i who want IDs. You will never, ever get them." Unquote. Here was a 
personal play, right, of a, a kind of a non-human power that authorized the state, in Mahmoud's words, to pronounce on substantive religious content and promoting majoritarian values and sensibilities at the expense of minority beliefs and practices. In 2008, the Administrative Court of Justice ruled that Baha'is should have national political identity cards to ensure their civic equality. The judgment was poignant in highlighting the devastating emptiness of categories so as to be flexible and fungible and as strategically posed as possible. They were to leave the space for religion blank so as not to challenge the state's sole recognition of the religions of the book and not to compel any individual to bear false testimony to the state, a win-win for the state. Because no other state has this distinction, writes Mahmoud, their identity cards clearly mark them as Baha'is. The empty slot is an indication of their deviation from the Muslim norm, and for some, a sign of their apostasy from Islam." Unquote. So, the computers installed to systemati systematize issues of Egyptian national identity bear an uncanny resemblance to the powers of secular governance in general, purporting to go inside in the name of protecting the difference within, crunching the data of the private, systematizing it, and making it make sense, making it public for the sake of private freedom and political security. This is how all difference becomes compatible with one another. And this is what might be called the cynicism of democratic gesturing. Lines of code becoming lines of force, creating absolutely new conditions of possibility while simultaneously drawing from an epistemological fundament of Western liberal conceptions and deployments of the secular. A standardized national identity card for every Egyptian citizen, a technique by which individuals can be made known to themselves and others without remainder. Thank you very much, John. Uh, before opening up the discussion uh, to all the audience members, uh, I thought it would, might be uh, useful uh, to actually have uh, the possibility of any comments from the panelists uh, with regards to anything that uh, you heard or read in the uh, comments, uh, uh, if you would so wish. I, I don't want to make, uh, compel you, uh, but if you want to take a couple of minutes to respond or to reflect on anything that was said from co-panelists, uh, we have some time. Or should we just open it up? Open it up? Okay. So we will open it up for all the audience members. And uh, uh, any comments, reflections, questions? Uh, of course, uh, Sabah is not here, so we would not have the author to respond to the questions. But we will have our discussants engage with the larger themes and any of the points that came up uh, in these response uh, papers and presentations. Yeah, maybe this microphone will be useful. I, um, so I kind of came a little late, um, but I didn't hear anyone really bring up the relationship between capitalism and secularism. Um, so my question is about that, maybe directed at all of you. Um, but the real idea is, do you see secularism as a tool for capitalism? Do you see secularism and capitalism as one of the same, working together? 
do you see secularism veiling capitalism in some way or making sense of capitalism as it moves in to a territory in the Middle East um, and redefines social relations? Um, you know, so about that. I don't know if you want me to clarify a bit further. But what I was thinking about, I think Dr. Modern, you brought up the idea of, I think you said, what's behind the state or this nation state? I would argue Nestle Core, Coke, Viacom. <laughs> That's maybe who's behind the state. Um, but anyways, I'll let you all. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think my go-to answer would be a kind of a Weberian kind of elective yeah. affinity kind of, you know, you <laughs> yeah, know, to yeah, kind of yeah. get away from a certain kind of causal model. But, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm more, much more familiar with the sort of American kind of context in which some of these things play out. But, I mean, I think there's something about, um, I've been paper as well, ends on this note of how differences become compatible. And there's something about the sort of the logic of money, right? I mean, it makes everything fungible with everything else, right? There's something very incredibly powerful in an everyday way in which that is in our lives. And it does somehow mirror or resonate or reinforce and sustain that kind of way in which the logic of the secular uh, sort of demands a certain kinds of fungibility uh, of all difference, right? And so when that happens, then there is really no difference and everything really can be, be bought and sold on eBay, right? That's kind right. of, yeah, so. So I, uh, in my talk, I, I talked a little bit about uh, secularism as a form of thought. I was mm -hmm. uh, pushing it, I think, not overtly towards capitalism. I didn't have that in mind, but it, mm -hmm. it's, I think it's something that can, uh, ultimately, if you're looking at both of these entities, uh, you've got to look at the reasoning that each of these domains deploy. Mm -hmm. And there is, I think, uh, major overlap. Uh, I don't know whether people in the audience have, have come across uh, Roberto Esposito's uh, recent work on the machine of political theology. I think he brings together um, secularism, uh, uh, particularly religion, secularism, and also capitalism together in a very interesting way that I hadn't seen done before. Um, so short answer, yes, I think there is a an important connection, very important nexus between them. Uh, how exactly to pinpoint that, I'm not too sure, but uh, I don't think you can escape the kind of form of thought which is just totally imminent, it's everywhere, and that everybody is kind of forced to use. Um, again, whether you're buying, selling, or whether you're buying, selling your own religion, your own you know, identities, etc. So, sorry, it's a very garbled kind of uh, response. But Sorry, it was, I thought you were a different person. Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, just one more thing on that, too. I think, you know, the idea, again, in the American context, when you think about the buying and selling of religion, the way in which the spiritual but not religious, that ca the work that that category does for people, right? You know, that's a, that's a formation of the secular, but it's also just perfectly, perfectly capitalistic in terms of its sort of empowerment of a kind of consumer who stands above and is able to choose, right? And, you know, the, the question becomes, you know, um, you know, you know what are you know the good? You know, many goods are available, but really, are you know it, 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 the store doesn't have all the goods, right? You know, you just have a, a certain kinds of uh, limitation on the kinds of possibilities of you know manufacturing your own identity under a kind of spirituality or capitalist regime. I think that is an important kind of maybe inroad to like maybe 
a space where you could sort of get at that sort of complex sort of relationships. Thank you. Hi there. Uh, good morning. Thank you all for your uh, great responses and comments. Um, so I have a couple of questions. Um, one is for uh, Dr. John Modern. Um, so in your response, you um, referenced uh, both secular governance, which uh, Salah Mahmoud talks about in her book, um, but also governmentality, and I'm assuming secular governmentality. Um, and I'm just wondering um, what your thoughts are on um, maybe the differences between the two, because from what I understand, um, governance has a different sort of genealogy within uh, political science literature, um, whereas but governmentality is, I mean, obviously theorized by Foucault, um, but has a much sort of uh, the implied methodology, I guess, um, is a lot, yeah, more Foucauldian in that sense. So I'm just wondering if you maybe could comment on how you see um, the difference between those two concepts of secular governance and secular governmentality. Um, and I have another question um, uh, for Nermeen or for anyone on the uh, panel. So Nermeen, uh, I know we discussed this um, briefly before, um, but I'm just uh, wondering, because um, I noticed that a lot of the, the conversations around um, uh, secularism uh, in general and even secular governance um, has to do, uh, it's limited to or contained to the nation state. Um, and I, um, you know, in your discussion of secularity, it seemed as though um, that concept holds somewhat of a, a more of a promise, promise um, for transnational, uh, uh, transcending the nation state into a more transnational um, kind of understanding of the ways that uh, secularity uh, can influence uh, more global or can have a more global reach. Um, so I'm wondering uh, if you could comment on that um, or if any of the panelists could comment on this. Thank you so much. Um, well, thank you for that question. Um, that's a very good question and it's something I think I, I wrestle with a lot. And, and one of the things I was so excited about Saba's book was, you know, for the first time it, it, it sort of illuminated some things for me about the nature of, of discourse. And there's something about, and she was very, she's very good at hinting and suggesting these, these ways in which um, there's a kind of sovereign power that really is independent of individual actors. And, and so I think about the case of um, the difference between governmentality and secular governance, I think the thing I'm trying to think through, and I think I'm sort of suggesting with my kind of image of the computers and the way in which uh, the kind of algorithmic takeover of governance on a lot of different levels, um, there's so something about that reminds me of those moments in Foucault where he is really trying to push us to sort of, you know, as he says, think without categories, but to push us to think about uh, the nature of, 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 of modern um, sort of power. It's not simply governmentality, but it's a, a certain kind of way in which he talks about biopolitics. And he pushes us to sort of think um, about um, a, a, the, the sort of situation of, of state sovereignty as, as, um, as a moment which should give us pause to sort of try to understand it with kind of the classic enlightenment categories. He has this moment in the orders of discourse, which I always like to quote, where he talks about discourse as a, a maleficent power, right? There's something malevolent, right? There's something evil, there's something, you know, you know, something 
well, I'm not sure what the word to use, but something incredibly excessive about its nature. And I think for me, when I think about, you know, how might one compare the sort of secular governance of 2016 with, let's say, 1850 or something like that in my kind of little neck of the woods of American history. Um, it has to do with the way in which, um, for me, to rely on Foucault and to sort of push on that, that category for me to think about self-organization, for me to sort of be humble in the way in which I'm not looking for individual sort of bureaucrats who are practicing the art of governance or even programs or policies which are enacted in the name of these individuals, but to sort of see something that um, is moving on its own accord. And I think perhaps it goes back to maybe that first question about the, the affinity between capitalism and, and governance. There's a kind of consolidation that I think is incredibly necessary to think through, but I think it would be impossible to do so using the categories that have been given us by the sort of, the sort of secular atmosphere in which we sort of find ourselves as scholars. Um, thank you for the question. Thanks for the question. Oh, there you are. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, I think it's a. I think it's an interesting one. I think I wouldn't want us to think about secularism as restricted to the nation state. I think it might be more helpful to think of it um, in terms of political power, um, which of course then works transnationally, right? So I think it would really depend on the kinds of questions you're asking then. Um, if you're interested in secularity, again, I. Mahmoud is sort of locating that at the place of subjectivity, right? Um, individual uh, disposition, that sort, that sort of thing. Um, we're talking at the level of the subject. Um, so I think that once we start to open up to, to questions about transfer and international influence and that sort of thing, um, they're both, they both remain really uh, central um, and, and we wouldn't wanna say uh, that sort of secularism, we, we are only thinking about the, the institution or the structure of the nation state. So um, I think it would depend on our questions. Please. Uh, yeah, um, interesting, interesting stuff. Uh, I haven't read the book yet, but from what I hear in the discussion, and you can correct this if I'm wrong, I hear that in a way that kind of mimics the creation of world religions, Secularism is being created as an it that is obviously evil. It sucks. It, it, take, it takes up all the room. It allows nothing else to happen. Everything is subsumed under it. And yet there is this innocent category over there that's being unexamined called religion, which is somehow also acknowledged as at the beginning as being created, but then is assumed to be an it that uh, is examined perpetually and always in a negative way. But this other thing is kind of existing in some kind of Julie Andrews moment on a, on a hill as offering something else which is redemptive, which is innocent, which is mysterious, which is beyond the excess. And I find that disturbing. So I wonder if you could you could say something about that. Because in Mahmoud's work, I don't see any energy being put into analyzing the category of religion to the same extent as secularism. Mm -hmm. Anyway, just. Yeah. Anyone? Um, maybe I'll, if I 
can start off with very preliminary remarks. Um, I would just say that I think the work actually um, is trying not to put secular, the secular, secularism, secularity um, off to the side. Um, it's actually really very much about how religion and secularism are together and shaping shaping one another. So um, I think in, it can actually, as I mentioned really briefly in my remarks, um, really help us understand what religion is. Uh, thank you for that. Um, there are points throughout the book where she does uh, problematize religion as she does the secular and Naomi, you're right, she does bring them together. But you're also right, Naomi, it's not enough. Um, and uh, by and large, uh, that category does remain sort of uh, broadly uninterrogated. And um, I did wonder about getting heavily into that critique as well, but I think it would have been counterproductive, um, given that my own starting point is to actually critique the, the concept of world religion as well. Um, to what extent does it uh, sort of problematize the work as a whole? I don't think it does. Uh, you know, I think there's enough nuance in there in the book that you can see what she's trying to do. The problem would be, um, and I, I kind of wrestled with this. I mean, are there other categories with which you know, if you just X out the term religion, how would you have dealt with that? And I'm, I'm not sure I could quite answer that uh, in, in my own sort of work. Um, Mona, you, you mentioned, I think on page four, you're, you're, you're also struggling with her theorization. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that, possibly? I mean, that might speak to this, this question a little bit more. I say, I think it does. I think that this the talk that Mona gave speaks to that problem because it's much more specific. I think uh, what I was trying to point to in my comments was about where we begin as scholars in uh, undertaking research. Is it that we are looking at particular contexts to see where something called the category of religion and something called the category of the secular manifest? Or should we be looking at particular things that happen in the world and try and understand the conditions under which they happen. In which case, neither of these categories may be important or relevant or significant in any way. So my comments are really about uh, troubling our normative commitments to particular theor theorizations to think instead, what is at stake in what we study? Yeah, this, I mean, I'm not sure yeah, I'm not sure I see. I mean, I don't. I, I, and it's interesting to sort of hear that reading of Saba's book. I don't. I don't see that book or experience that book is offering a, a sort of space of kind of utopian hope or some sort of neutral, not uh, neutral space where we can then see this clearly. What I what I took from the book was this kind of real kind of, you know, constant sort of push, at least as I was a reader, to sort of think about one's own. Um, sort of space of within the secular frame, and 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 in a lot of ways that that one is dealing with the power of these categories, and so religion is getting you know sort of mangled up in the creation of the secular. Um, this is not uh, about where you know you choose one or the other to find some space of uh, kind of uh, 
uh, a sort of appealing political space, but it's a kind of um, responsibility that I think emerges from the book for me as I move forward in my work to sort of be more, in a sense, more careful, more um, cautious in, in, in arriving at a space where I feel satisfied with my own sort of, you know, uh, analytic, right? And, and to sort of, to move on the m most minimal level, perhaps in an act of somehow resistance within that frame to sort of move away from the initial categories that we are provided, right? Because we're in it, right? This is it. Study of religion, what are we doing, right? That's, you know, this is part of a longer history. Just very quickly, I, uh, that was the point that I was trying to get at in my presentation as well, that I think uh, whether it's secularism, secularity, or whether it's religion, ultimately the two are connected in the same form of thought. It's that which kind of connects them, drives them uh, in similar ways. And until you get to that level, um, I don't think we can grasp, uh, you know, the, the complexity of the problem as much. And I think, um, to be fair to Saba, what she did was really focus rigorously on these two concepts, uh, political secularism and secularity, and take them to such a point where uh, the problem of religion almost becomes kind of not quite irrelevant, but I'm looking for another word, um, uh, just becomes part of the, the problem of the secular. Yeah. Please. Um, thank you so much for this panel. It's been extremely um, interesting and generative. Most basically, my question is about a third category. So for me, talking about religion and secularity, I can't help but think about science, um, both technology, medicine, social sciences, natural sciences. And I wonder, especially um, in, in the thinking of um, secularism as a, a new or a particular kind of divide between public and private, um, how science over the 19th and 20th centuries is asserted to be a certain kind of public knowledge and a kind of value-neutral, apolitical sort of knowledge. And so I guess specifically my question is, for any of you, do you find that rather than you know, secular to be a kind of vacuum, that there is an assertion of this other form of knowledge or this other kind of space that is universally available or universally applicable, um, in, in any way do narratives or empirical experiences of science sort of haunt this kind of space that we might think of as a vacuum, but actually there's an assertion of another kind of thing that can come in um, and be you know, the thing that regulates between groups of people or you know, is the kind of knowledge that all can access for understanding their bodies or understanding their relationships to one another. So, I mean, I was, I was particularly thinking of this in, um, for Dr. Modern's comments, but I, it's sort of broadly interesting to me, I think, for all of, all of your perspectives. I'll just say, that's, no. a, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, you know, and I think that just when I think about the role that science, first thing I want to do is that all science is not the same. You know, I mean, science can cut many different kinds mm -hmm. of directions. It can have different kinds of political valences, and it can have, have very different very different kind of epistemological consequences. Uh, and so that is right. There's a way in which science you know, in, you know, does, on some level, generate a lot of, in a sense, authoritative public knowledge that we supposedly all share or should share. And that knowledge is, in a sense, generated from a space that lionizes the sort of private space of objectivity of a kind of 
perfection of one's individuality, where one can see things clearly without, without barriers or obstacles or, or media. Um, and so it is obviously um, a, an incredible generator, not just of ways in which people go about their daily lives, but also obviously public policy and, and these kinds of things. But it can also, science can, I've been, science can cut also in very different ways. I mean, you know, you know, scientists, at least legitimate scientists, right, and I say them in quotes, don't study telepathy or ESP anymore. And there's ways in which there, at least in the American grain, there is a language and grammar of science that is is, is, is part of, uh, of, of, of not just a kind of authoritative discourse of secularism, but a lot of, you know, sort of interesting marginal sort of metaphysical or occult or sort of countercultural sort of groups. And so that question is rich because I think it perhaps provides another avenue by which we can get at the sort of different kinds of textures of the secular. You know, I like the, obviously the fabric metaphor is running through all of our talks, right? You know, this kind of thing. And there's ways in which that fabric is not just an even, evenly sewn document. It's this kind of thing with texture and bumps and, and there's a way in which I think that's, a, that's another payoff of this book is to sort of tend rigorously to the minor details and to see and to resist that impulse that we all share to universalize, right? I mean, we all have it in us and I think there's something kind of um, really productive when I, when I think about that, so. I'm also very interested in the, the question that you asked. I don't really have um, anything profound to say other than I do think that Mahmoud is dealing with these issues in the book. Um, so for example, but, but science as maybe um, as history, for example, right? Um, and, or also transformations of what was considered to be knowledge, which she deals with in the first chapter um, when she's talking about colonial education. Um, so I think she's very attentive to to yeah, how how the way we think about what knowledge is gets transformed, um, particularly yeah at the at this moment of colonial um, encounter and the sorts of experiences that are had um, by by all Egyptians in terms of thinking about what knowledge is, um, both both Muslim uh, I should say Muslims, Copts, Baha'is, um. and I'll just say um, in a quick response. Mm -hmm. um, so my question is sort of prompted not by you know thinking of science as a is, it's not prompted by thinking of science as something specific or universal, mm -hmm. but actually rather how, even with all of the ways in which scholars in a variety of fields problematize um, the category of science, that there is still something that is so compelling in the, the rhetoric of it as this public universal. And so in thinking about this argument about secularism as you know, a static, neutral, um, space on which things are constructed. Uh, I'm just sort of compelled to think through how does this this other historical narrative about this form of knowledge that is universal, how does that play into what the, what the secular is? So I wouldn't ever want to say that I think science is a particular thing. Yeah, um, well, I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting just to sort of think about the kind of, just the basic categorical distinction between religion and science, right? Mm -hmm. It's the thing that, causes fights and causes trouble, but it's also the thing that people, oh, we, can't we all get along? Can't we get these people in a room and there's a universal sort of thing? I mean, that is a, it's a fairly recent history, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a way in which that, whatever that frame is, that is a fairly recent imposition upon our way of thinking about the world that's saturating. And as I mentioned to you guys, I, I attended many, many a cognitive science of religion panel yesterday because I'm thinking about this project I'm on. And, um, 
you know, I, I apologize to any cognitive scientists in the room, but uh, <laughs> it's an incredible performance of reason. It's incredible. It really is, it really is just, um, uh, I, get, I, get, I, get, I get chills. I'm in the room and I see this kind of authoritative reason which is both triumphal and defensive, mm -hmm. triumphal and defensive, kind of oscillating between those two. And I'm like, oh my God, that's how this, how, this is where that power comes from. Mm -hmm. And so, no, we don't reduce everything to the brain. We, we appreciate culture, we appreciate social construction, but man, those postmodernists, they don't believe in reality, right? I mean, there's this kind of yeah, sort yeah. of yeah. I want to echo everybody else in thanking you guys for four rich reflections on the Mahmoud book. It's a great advertisement for the book or for those of us who, due to life, had to read it too quickly to go back and take a further look. Uh, for me, I think that perhaps the most generative distinction that she draws is the one that Shara Lee drew our attention to at the beginning between the between secularism's promise of freedom and its regulatory function, where if I understand her argument correctly there, secularism operates on the one hand in the mode of liberalism, uh, guaranteeing the rights and freedoms of the sovereign individual, and then on the other hand in the mode of governmentality, uh, managing populations and maintaining identities and group form in a way that perhaps is more clearly articulated in post-colonial contexts than in places like the US, where the regulatory function tends to be more under the surface. But I mean, I'd be curious to hear any of the four panelists reflect on how this distinction might refract in your own work or in your papers today. And in particular, I was interested in Mona's paper, right, which is interested in the failure of the public-private distinction to really operate in Egypt, where the state is so aggressively regulating uh, personal law, uh, which would be private. And I wonder, I mean, is that something that operates, which, which column does that fall into? Right? Is that uh, secularism and uh, guaranteeing its promise of freedom, secularism as liberalism, or is that the governmentality secularism, secularism as its regulatory function? Uh, similarly, with regard to Arvin's paper, I mean, I kind of wonder whether you know religion as identity sort of sits uneasily at the margins of the two columns, uh, where on the one hand, uh, you know, identity is the means by which secularism guarantees the freedom of the individual. On the other hand, it's the way in which secularism inscribes a group identity onto the individual, so as to regulate the individual as part of a group. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I think it's a really precise distinction that she draws, and I'd be curious to hear you guys mull it over. for your question. So um, as probably came across in my comments, um, I have quite a bit of skepticism in terms of whether defining what secularism does along these two rubrics coheres with particular uh, realities in specific state contexts. And so my interest is in looking and, at how, for example, law and religion is actually organized in particular states because the promise that secularism works as uh, as generative of particular kinds of freedoms, but also uh, managing difference uh, is really not paying enough attention to the particularities of the managerial aspect of what states actually do. Uh, so my suggestion is that if we look at what states actually do rather than what they promise, we might get a better, more complex and perhaps complicated picture of Secularism. Thank you for that prompt. Um, my work, um, it's interesting, I uh, was heavily engaged in, in writing four or five chapters of this new book. Uh, it's on 
encounter, a theorizing encounter between um, uh, Western concepts and uh, concepts taken from the, the Indian uh, framework, uh, particularly Sikh concepts. And what I kept coming back to again and again was the ground on which these concepts were being forced to meet again and again, both historically and um, and in the in the current sort of context. And what Mahmoud's book allowed me to do, particularly the last two chapters, was to see straight away that one one has to wrestle with um, with with secularity as that particular ground, name it, and then kind of move from there. So I'm not sure if I understood the question rightly, but I'm, I'm actually moving away from questions of religious identities and trying to think about um, encounters between different concepts in terms of their um, self-differentiations in the way that they allow self-differentiation to happen. And to me, that's also a way of avoiding the impact of capitalism, the way it homogenizes uh, entire communities, their enunciation, and the way that governments then kind of tap into that particular aspect as well. So, in a in a sense, I'm kind of restaging this encounter. Um, it, it, it's it's a very uh, uh, it, 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 it's um, it's very experimental what I'm kind of doing, and I'm hoping and and ultimately it sort of comes down to elucidating modes of time which uh, secularity, political secularism, simply do not allow to be recognized. My, my question then comes, what if those times are already lived and absolutely worldly? How could we bring them into conversation with the demands of secularity and secularism? That's how I negotiate that question that you're kind of talking about. And I think it has, I think it can have consequences for the ways that minorities interact with governments. It all depends on what you are able to say as opposed to what you're allowed to say and what prohibited from saying. So, it, it, yeah, so, again, sorry about that. Thanks for a wonderful panel. Um, I have a question that I hope will recover some of what seems latent to me in these conversations and in some of the questions. Um, as someone who's extremely concerned with what we mean when we call things secularism, when we talk about secularism, I hope to take advantage of a panel of people who have actually played a role in its construction as we intend it in the academy. And also, while talking about the book of a scholar who's had an enormous influence on helping us understand what it is we're talking about when we're talking about secularism. And my, I guess, ongoing anxiety about perhaps what is a generative contradiction is when we talk about secularism as religion making, if I can borrow that phrase, we're talking about secularism as something that, that constructs religion and sort of stands above maybe the particularities of uh, materialist ontology or, or a sort of secular position as secularism was intended in its coinage by George Jacob Holyoke, 1851, as a kind of free thought or something like that. So it's standing over and it's determining what religion is. But then what's lost to me are these, what can we call them, political ontologies that remain illegible in that framework. I think we do a really good job criticizing and undermining what we might think of as secular humanism, as secular liberalism, 
I think that a vulgar Marxism is easy enough to deal with in the ways in which it makes religion epiphenomenal and is also probably overconfident in its rationality. I think we just completely miss, say, like a, a Deleuzian political ontology or the return to Epicurus that happens in late Althusser and that recovery of a kind of materialism that is not liberal or what Stefanos Girolanos calls that atheism that emerges in French thought that is not humanist in the mid 20th century. So how do we account for these things that are left over when we talk about secularism as religion making because they don't seem to fit within the framework of religion even though they perhaps ought to, they're excluded from these conversations and they seem to me like a shadow that looms. So in as much as we have a panel here who I think is actively engaged in secularism making, if I can appropriate that, I'd love to hear what you think about this problem. Very quick comment. Um, what I caught really interested me was was uh, the, the Deleuzean aspect of what you're saying, and um, I, I didn't want to bring it up too much because it goes into different directions. But um, that's the way I'm trying to bring out political ontologies. So um, I, sorry about this out advertising here, but this, this new project that I'm working on um, is subtitled um, "Untimely Event." Um, uh, I've had six different titles. I can't remember the damn title now. Um, it was uh, Encounters Between Deleuzean and Sikh Concepts. So in that particular work, I mean, it, I, I have found a tremendous overlap between what uh, Mahmoud is saying in those last two chapters and the way Deleuze kind of just opens out this field of consciousness uh, particularly in logic of sense. Um, and I'm also uh, trying to stage that same situation in the work of uh, Guru Nanak, for example, his writings. And what brings them together is um, th th this uh, notion of uh, ego critique, if you like, uh, the way that Deleuze does it differently and Nanak does it. But I mean, Deleuze would call it something like disjunctive synthesis, right, in, in logic of sense, that is a ground which allows different uh, ontologies to kind of come together uh, and not be homogenized under the, the kind of framework of identities. And to me, that's, that's the political question here, is how we can kind of negotiate that synthesis, that association, which allows the disjunctive to remain. And what I keep sort of harking back to is uh, times, uh, situations where those historically have happened. Um, so I'm not willing also to let go of the kind of history of religions work uh, in this respect, and I kind of like to bring them together. Sorry, my thoughts are all, all over the place on this, but I hope it answers something of what you were asking. Other comments? Yeah, no, I would, I mean, I have my mind is racing right now. Um, you know, I think, um, well, I'll, I'll step back here. When, uh, the, uh, there's another version of this presentation I gave that starts with um, thinking about Sachran Berkovich's uh, The American Jeremiah and his uh, 1978 book, Thinking About Puritanism in the Way of the Sermonic Form of the Jeremiah. 
um, as he calls a kind of uh, you know a desire to impose you know metaphor upon reality. You know this idea of uh, you know you have these sort of Calvinists um, who ostensibly believe in original sin, who ostensibly believe in the sort of limitations of human reason, um, but yet there's this sermonic form that in a sense you know displaces or surpasses that sort of check, right? And so uh, there's a way in which um, I, I come at this problem by I'm trying to constantly remind myself that I'm within this secular frame. And so I, I do resist trying to point out or celebrate some sort of ontology or some sort of practice out there that I think is outside or I think is some sort of counter or alternative. Um, but what I do find very valuable are, are, are ways of presentation. And you talked about experimenting. And I think that's one of the things that a book like this kind of demands us to rethink how we tell the stories that we're telling. And so, for example, I think in my own sort of academic intellectual biography, there was this moment when I was reading the introduction to Assad's Formations of the Secular. And uh, he, he takes on Michael Tossig, um, one of my, you know, one of my kind of, you know, fanboy heroes from graduate school, you know, just, and he, in his, in his way, methodically, deliberately and very systematically takes down Tossig for basically being part of this kind of secular formation where he's just simply reversing the categories. And I've always found myself sort of caught between those two poles. I love reading Assad, I love reading Mahmoud, and I love reading Tossig, right? And I love reading novels. And, and, and in a way that um, for me to sort of try to think about as a, as a scholar who tries to tell stories about the power of the secular frame that we're in, um, I, I try to, you know, I try to, you know, ideally, you know, learn from the kind of incredible analytic rigor that you see in a book like this, but also to sort of be open to just uh, a kind of craziness that is within a certain kind of scholarship that is kind of moving, you know, in, in a kind of almost flustered way against the secular frame, right? And, and, and so you don't know what's going to happen, but I think that's for me it gives me some hope on some level that you do produce work, you do read other work, you do create communities, intellectual communities, perhaps real communities that are going to somehow revolve around a different set of, it's a different epistemology, right? And it can't happen overnight, it's gonna take time, so that's me. Other uh, questions and comments? We have plenty of time. Please. I just have more of a comment than I have a question. And I somehow resonate with the last uh, question concerning the, the character, the underlying character of secularism. And for that reason, I, I want to just acknowledge my, my resonation with Mona's question at the end or her, her thought-provoking statement at the end, you know, what if we if we, if we devise our theories from what we see manifested from what, different from what we think is a shadow or what we perceive. And I think from a practical point of view that resonates with me because not so much from a political theological standpoint but more from a theological standpoint, I think. So if society is secular, then what? Theologically, what does that mean for a theologian? If, if society is secular, where does that take us? What do we do? And, and it depends to a large extent, I believe, on what we mean by secular. And therefore, we're not responding to what 
we perceive it to be or what we, we would like it to be, but in effect, what it really is. And I suppose the, con the consideration for me from this is how do we move forward, practically speaking, as theologians, uh, if society is indeed secular and based on the way we define that secularity? If I could just add to that comment, um, uh, Arvind, in the longer version of the comments that you had circulated, I think there is some uh, uh, reflections that might speak to that question because you really talk about ways in which, uh, you know, in the 19th century Indian context uh, and uh, some of the work that you're trying to do in trying to uh, uninherit these regimes of translation and uh, these uh, regimes of interdiction by recovering other ways of imagining categories like the word uh, in the Sikh tradition. And there is resistance to that by Sikh modernists precisely because of the invisibility of a certain colonial secular power that is operative. So I think there is something going on in those comments that speaks to, to this question in that you're doing a certain kind of work of recovery that is uninheriting this invisible secular power. So maybe I would, if I could prompt you to. I think something. you said it better than I could have. So <laughs> if, if I'll come back to it if I need to, but I think sure. Mona maybe could answer that question. Sure, please. Thank you so much for your comments. I think, uh, so what I, what I found quite a bit in, in my research uh, was that there was a constant uh, problem of translation, not in the sense that I needed to find a vocabulary and, uh, to translate the difference between my interlocutors and the academics who would read my work, for example, but how to leave unresolved the problem of translation in the sense that uh, we often put a lot of emphasis on translating worlds that are not familiar to us. But I somehow find that leaving, leaving the pr problem as it exists highlights particularly the, the predicament that you're pointing to, that there, there may not be a good way to do that, and perhaps maybe we shouldn't strive to. Uh, but in terms of your question of what do theologians do in a secular world, well, I would ask what context are you talking about in particular? Are you talking about the United States? Are you talking about, I think place is very important to thinking about what we do. Any other comments on that question? What, please, please go ahead. Um, just quickly, I think you know, I, I agree, absolutely. My, my initial instinct is just to say we need more theologians studying the power of the secular modern, right? I mean, the, the ways and means of its power demands an appreciation for excess, an appreciation for um, a world that does not necessarily have to make sense, right? And I, I think that's important. Other comments on that question? One of the comments that, I, if I could invite our uh, panelists to speak on a, a theme that has uh, come up in our discussions, but perhaps we could talk about it more directly, is this intervention that uh, Sabah Mahmood is making in questioning the binary of the Western and non-Western secularism. And one of the distinctive features of this book is that it really is taking the context of a Muslim majority country and looking at the problem of uh, secularism that is operative perhaps uh, there is a certain kind of a secular political rationality that is operative uh, through a state which is not avowedly secular in its, in its self-identification. Uh, and, and of course the main argument here being that 
there are different ways in which a secular political rationality works, but the, the structure of the modern state is such that the shadow of secular power is inescapable to it. And I think that is in some ways an intervention that connects the field of secularism studies and also Islamic studies and the study of religion in showing uh, the importance of looking at the problem of secular power in uh, Muslim majority contexts or other possible contexts that are not uh, identified explicitly as a secular state. So I was wondering if panelists could reflect a bit on the implications of that argument, on how you see that argument, your reflections on it, uh, and so on, if you so wish. Let's quickly just sort of uh, maybe start things off by saying, I mean, you know, you know, obviously the question of of of, of a whatever the so-called religious character or religious roots of the secular imaginary, I mean, it's often contested. But in general, I mean, it, it, it you know, this is cliche to say, but it just offers a kind of global transnational frame to sort of see power happening, right, and to see power happening not. Um, you know, to see the way in which, yeah, these very different places um, uh, are under the, working under the sign of a kind of global imaginary that's been around for hundreds of years, right? And to sort of rethink, um, you know, from my, again, my little neck of the woods, American religious history, very parochial thing, where say Protestants and some Catholics and some Jews, and they're doing their things. Um, but to sort of see the way in which that, whatever that story you're telling, is just implicated and complicit in a much larger story. And and that is a much more um, useful and provocative kind of frame where if, if we were to move forward in scholarship to sort of, to be necessarily have to attend to the way in which piety or religion or, or, or faith is being regulated and practiced and enacted and, and generated, but to see that in light of this, you know, constantly pushing back the frame, constantly moving back. And, you know, every book or every article can't do everything, but that just that that nudge to, to sort of you know to, you know to sort of look around you about what is going on with the people and the things that you're studying that have this longer generative history that is yeah and your work surely your work shows like I mean on the debates you know late 19th century shows like the category of religion being it's a strange story that if you sit with it. Um, pushes you to sort of perhaps rethink some of the maybe kind of categories you sort of inherit from your own sort of disciplinary training. Again, very brief comment here, but my takeaway from the book about the question of non-Western secularisms, uh, even though uh, Saba does not bring it out as much as I would want, there is still enough there in, in that wonderful chapter four. Um, to, to at least give you an idea of wh where she's going with this. My takeaway is that the idea of a non-Western secularism is still something of a non-starter, um, that we're still dealing with secularism, political secularism, the field of political secularism as such. And that uh, works very nicely in uh, the South Asian context, for example. Um, and as I was reading that section, it, you know, the, Esposito's work on, on political theology was just, just running through my mind as well, where he basically says that when we talk about secularism, even in um, 
non-Western context, actually we're still dealing, the mechanism we're still dealing with is actually Christian political theology. And we'll never really get away from that. And between the two, and he does this, uh, Esposito does this brilliant uh, reading of Heidegger, um, where he goes back to Heidegger um, and, and looks at why Heidegger never took the idea of secularism that seriously and, and says actually he did take it very seriously but simply said uh, simply transposed it into the problem of political theology and political theology into the mecha the mechanics of representation and the way that the uh, representation actually works and then the rest of uh, Esposito's book is is really a, uh, an unpicking of uh, that mechanism of representation. Um, so, uh, yeah, my f and, and this is, uh, my own work bears that out as well. The, uh, the distinction between these two is, is not sort of valid. Yeah. Any other uh, final questions, comments? We still have time, so any questions and comments? Please vote. I'll jump in with a large question of uh, whether secularism studies, you know, this book does feel in some ways like a summation. It's very integrative and synthetic in its scope um, uh, and gives us a pretty polished summation of where the field has been. Where to now, right? I take Charlie's uh, provocation that one of the great things about the book is that it uses Egypt as a paradigm, that this quote unquote non-Western country becomes the center of thinking for secularism more generally which seems useful, that's in advance. But what, what's next for secularism studies? Have we worked through all of the questions? What questions are left to us? Um, well, maybe I would, I would answer that by saying, hopefully that um, as somebody coming from outside of secularism studies, um, that it's actually going to be not necessarily for what happens for secular studies, but how will um, approaches to religion outside of secular studies then take um, secularism really seriously. So that's what I'm now trying to do in my work. So I work primarily with Muslims, but I also look um, at relations between Copts and Muslims um, in my work. And so, and so for me, this book is precisely helpful for trying to get away from always talking about the genealogies of the traditions that we're working with and really trying to take seriously the other sorts of influences that are at play. Um, and that's why I sort of gesture to things like self-help literature, things that it's really easy to kind of just write off, not really take seriously, um, but to, you know, to actually, you know, ask um, ethnographically, right, really paying attention to, to our interlocutors, like, what does it mean that you're reading men are from Mars and women are from Venus um, at the same time that you're reading these other preachers, these, you know, um, texts that have, of, of religious advice that go back, you know, centuries. Um, so yeah, I would say let's let's ask what beyond these secular studies, sort of what can it do for other ways of investigating religion? Uh, I would say to the extent that scholars uh, are interested in political secularism as a doctrine, uh, and to the similar extent that states have shown themselves to be infinitely productive, to the extent that the productivity continues to enact a force in the world, there will always be a way to study states and what they do. So uh, whether th that's in Egypt, uh, which is a case study that has been 
uh, discussed um, at length uh, in secularism study in the secularism studies canon, or in new states that, or in states that m perhaps have not been uh, looked at by scholars of secularism. Uh, the, the demands of modernity are placing, uh, are, are allowing states to be infinitely productive, and I think uh, examining their productivity is is a way forward for studying political secularism. I'll just uh, half jokingly begin. I think we, one of the insights of you know so-called secular studies over the past 15 years is to the revelation that we're all doing secular studies. And that's what we've always been doing, and that's what we'll continue to do. Um, uh, but more specifically and more earnestly, I think um, you know when I. I sometimes will read an article and my, my, my book will be mentioned along with like it will say secular studies and I always get kind of like I don't, I don't know, I mean like in a lot of ways I, I don't know so much if I share a kind of substantive object that I'm looking at with these other folks as much as a style of approach. Um, and I, I think there's something about this moment right now in, in, in the study of religion in general that for me when I look back on those important works, you know, the Assad, the Mahmouds, the Hirschkins, but also like Wayne Sullivan and Tracy Fessenden, and these people who are trying to um, en enact a, a certain kind of theoretical reflexivity and sensitivity to the object of religion or the way in which religion is getting studied and practiced. Um, and to do that in a way that doesn't go down the road of just saying, okay, it's all politics. It's just all about identity politics. It's all about certain kinds of power relations. There's a certain kind of there's an air of reductionism, not just in the cognitive science of religion, but in also other f spaces of the academy that is being, you know, the straw men there are these theologians who are reifying categories, who you're really a theologian in disguise, you're not really a historian, you kind of believe in your categories. And, and I think that, that, that secularism studies, for me, the, the continual sort of inspiration is to resist both of those in a way, to sort of stay in this middle space where you are using categories without believing in them, and you're having a conversation with yourself about the effects of your work. What is your work doing? Why is it doing the work it's doing? I mean, that, to kind of continue that conversation and to keep a kind of style of analysis open a, a, as a way, in a ways that I see in many spaces within the academy closing down in very different ways, but at the end of the day, you know, you have a, a, a kind of reduction, everything to like identity politics on one side, or you have a kind of just, you know, a kind of triumphal theological take on history. I think those are, at the end of the day, both parts of the things that we're trying to get at, the compatibility of those two things, so. Thank you, I don't have much to add to that, actually. Those are very rich kind of re reflections. Um, one thing that did come up was, um, certainly on a personal level, is, is pursuing uh, secularism or secularity studies as a way of c complicating one's own subjectivity and complicating the question of subjectivity as well, uh, politically, um, possibly moving towards the idea of self-differentiating subjectivity, something that can coexist um, within political uh, environments without becoming homogenized, um, depending on whichever context you're, you're kind of living in. But that, that's as far as I want to kind of think about it for now. <laughs> Very brief last yeah. comment. So in my role as co-chair of the Secularism and Secularity Group, perhaps I can answer very literally and say that uh, we have a panel later today on religion, media, and secularism from 5 to 6.30. And on Tuesday morning, we have one on religion and 
uh, secular and violence. And so that's what we're doing immediately next. Uh, the CFP, the past two years, has basically begged for things on race and secularism and gender secularism. I think I got two papers one year and three another year. So anything in that area would be extremely valuable. Um, and then we also really wanted something on Asian and Asian American secularities because it's basically unexplored. So please, yes, please. Um, and I think there are other directions that are exciting too. Thanks. So thank you all. And please join me in thanking all our panelists for these wonderful conversations.